0: Revelation chapter 20 this morning, would you please turn there in your Bibles? Revelation, the 20th chapter. I have to say that these are absolutely incredible things that we're going to be commenting on this morning. Were it not for the fact that the Lord himself has revealed these truths, we'd have no business trying to share such things. But he's revealed them. And he's revealed these truths to us for a reason. He wants to encourage his people. He wants to give to his people a constant, never-ending ground and expectation of hope. He wants to give his people an understanding of what's to come in order that his people might be enabled to live in the present. Because when I know what's coming in the future, that enables me to live in the present. When I know how God has dealt with my past, that enables me to live in the present. The past dealt with through Christ. When I understand what God has for me in the future, that enables me to live in the present. It gives definition to the things that I experience in this life. And nothing, absolutely nothing, is ever wasted because of the fact that we have a future hope. Now, just consider what these passages have meant to believers throughout the entire history of the church. Imagine what it meant in the first century when the Christians were under heavy persecution from the Roman government, the Roman Emperor Domitian, determined to exterminate the church and every trace of Christianity. And the Christians were beleaguered and hassled and persecuted and killed and suffering for their faith. And they, reading these things, were greatly encouraged, no doubt. But it's also been true of every subsequent age of the church, and even into our present day, that the Lord has given these things to us that we might have a certainty for our hope. So let's read the passage and then we'll come back and make comment. Beginning in Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them, and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The great white throne judgment of God leading in to the complete destruction of the present universe which opens the door for the creation of the eternal universe and world, which brings in the eternal state, where God himself dwells with us directly. That's what we've just read. So we're talking about, time frame-wise, we're talking about what happens at the very end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Remember the chronology. Jesus comes back for his church in the rapture. It can happen at any time. Sometime following the rapture, the tribulation period begins, seven years long in duration. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus returns from heaven to the earth and judges the unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world that are still alive at that time, and he sets up his kingdom. His kingdom lasts for a thousand years. The Jews have a very prominent place in that kingdom, as does the church. And we will reign and live with him for a thousand years and ultimately forever and ever. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed from his place in the bottomless pit for a short time. Some are deceived and go with him, and then the eternal state begins. A new heaven and a new earth are created, and then the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God to the earth, and there we live forever and ever. Now again, were it not for the fact that God has revealed these things, we would have no basis of even trying to share such truths, but God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. And as I think through these things, I think about how do I know that these things are real? How do I know that these things are really going to happen? And the great ground of certainty is in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. And he's the authority behind all these things that have been revealed. He's the one that has revealed these things. Remember, this is the revelation, the disclosure, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Jesus has revealed these things, and he's the one that conquered death and is alive today. Anyone who conquered death and is alive today is an authority on whatever subject he wants to talk about. And he's the only one that did. And so he's the authority about what's happening in the future. And on top of that, we have the compilation of all of fulfilled prophecy up to this time. Whatever God has predicted as a future event up until this present time, it has all come to pass. And he's not going to break his track record concerning things that will happen in the future. He will be faithful. He is always consistent. He always acts like himself. He always does what he promises that he will do. There's plenty of certainty. We've got the certainty of the prophetic word, which Peter said is the more certain word of prophecy, the more sure word of prophecy. We've got the reality of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and we've got the track record of God in fulfilling all of the prophecies that have been given up until the present time. There's a lot of certainty upon which we base these things. So the passage begins with an explanation of this event, which we call the great white throne judgment of God. And notice in verse 11, this great white throne, John saw it, and he saw the one who sat on this great white throne. Now notice what happens. The earth and the heaven fled away from before the face of the one that was seated upon the throne. The face of God has that kind of power to it where the entire material universe flees away in front of his face. Now the wonderful thing for those that are in Christ is that same face looks upon a little child and looks upon the faith of one of his godly ones and is smiling and is welcoming. So it all depends on what side of Christ a person is on. A person who is in Christ, the face of God has a big smile on it the person who is not in Christ and wants to take his or her chances and wait until this great white throne judgment, the face of God will be a very awesome thing. Like it says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this gives us a clue as to how the old cosmos is destroyed. It happens by the face of God. There may be physiological and physical things that happen that can be explained when they're observed from a scientific perspective, but the bottom line is the face of God causes the destruction of the old universe and makes way for the presence of the new one. And John saw, in verse 12, the dead, small and great, standing before God. Now who are these dead? small and great standing before God who will stand before this great white throne judgment. Well they are not believers in Jesus Christ. They are not those that have accepted Christ. Remember, there are two resurrections. There is the resurrection of life and there is the resurrection of condemnation. The resurrection of life is made up of all of those who anticipated by faith Christ's coming and all of those who believed in looking back at Christ's coming. In other words, every true believer from every age is raised in the first resurrection. And they have received their new bodies. And they are permanently attached to that new body. And there is no sin in those bodies, and there is no judgment connected to being in those bodies these new bodies are fashioned like unto Jesus' own glorious body. It's an eternal habitation. A dwelling of God made and eternal in the heavens, Second Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. So those are the folks that are part of the first resurrection. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you're part of that first resurrection. You won't be standing here at this great white throne judgment. You won't be answering for your sins. Your sins were already answered for 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross at Calvary. And when he completed the work of redemption, which is the basis for the forgiveness of our sins. So, you don't need to fear that future judgment if you are in Christ. So that's the whole deal. Get in Christ if you're not in Christ. Those who are not in Christ, they are part of the resurrection of condemnation. And they will be raised at the end of the thousand years, and when they are raised, they are raised unto this judgment. They're raised for the purpose of this judgment, that they might stand before God. And what happens at that judgment in verse 12? It says the books were opened, and another book was opened, The book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in those books. And so the books here are the record of all the information that the judge of the universe requires to close the case against every human being. The books contain all the information concerning the details of a person's life. How they lived, what they thought, what their motives were, what their actions were. And it tells us in Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, verse 14, that God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. That's what will happen when these books are opened. Every work is brought into judgment. Every secret thing is brought into judgment for those that are standing before this great white throne. And this, the text is very clear. It says that the dead are judged according to their works. So that brings us to the question, why Are the dead, in this resurrection of condemnation, judged according to their works? Why are their works the criteria for their judgment? And the answer is, because that's what they wanted. They wanted to be judged according to their works. They wanted to take their chances and stand before the living God and give account for the way they lived their life. They believed that the way they lived their life was good enough to get into heaven. And you've had those conversations if you have shared your faith and shared the person of Christ with others. One of the frequent responses is, well, I think I've lived a good enough life. I think God will accept me into heaven. And you tell them, no, wait a minute, you can't be good enough. You have to be as righteous as Jesus to make it into heaven. You have to be perfect. If you've offended in one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. You really don't want to take your chances and stand before God at the great white throne and try to answer for your own life on the basis of the law. God sees everything. He knows everything. You don't want that. You don't want to have to do that. That's a bad decision. And you try to plead with people and you try to show them their need for Jesus Christ and to receive the gospel and to repent of their sins and accept the gift of eternal life which comes through the shed blood of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. You try to share and beg people to be reconciled to God. But some say, nope, I'm taking my chances. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to humble myself before the cross I'm not going to accept Jesus Christ I Have a problem with the idea that he's the only way. Or whatever other decision they've made. And so they've decided they want to be judged according to their works. So God will give them what they want. He will judge them according to their works. And he will open the books. And the dead will be judged according to the things written in those books. But there's another book, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. It's the book of life. And some people believe, some commentators believe, that everyone is written in this book of life only to be blotted out when they refuse to believe. It's an interesting thought. And it tells us in verse 13 that at this resurrection of condemnation, the sea gives up the dead, death in Hades Delivered up the dead that were in them. Everyone's judged according to their works. And then ultimately, even death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Verse 14, this is the second death. And in verse 4 of chapter 21, we see that eventually there will be no more death. The second death is eternal separation from God. The first death took place in the Garden of Eden. God told the man and the woman, you may eat freely of every tree which is in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat thereof, because in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall certainly die. And so, in rebellion against God, and under the deception of the serpent, the man and the woman ate of the forbidden fruit, And they died, not physically, although the seeds of physical death began to work within their bodies. But not physically they didn't die. And not eternally, not yet they didn't die. But they did die spiritually. Their spirits were severed from the Spirit of God. Even though they were created in the image of God, and even though all their offspring are created in the image of God, it's a faint Memory of the image of God. It's not the full image of God into which Adam and Eve were originally created. Dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible calls it. Alienated from the life of God in Ephesians, the Bible calls it. Separated from God. Having a vague memory of God, but not having any personal relationship with him having a consciousness of guilt and that something's wrong and there must be more to life than this, but not knowing naturally how to find it or how to get a hold of it. That's man in his fallen state. That's the first death. And a person who lives in that state has great hope if they trust in Christ because when a person trusts in Christ, they are made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. And now their spirit is renewed, and now they are born again, born from above, born again by God's Spirit, new creations in Christ, able now to access God, able now to understand God, able now to know God and to relate to God. The spiritual death is ended upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, somebody who rejects that, and doesn't want to repent and doesn't want to believe the gospel, the greatest news in the history of mankind. Well, they'll have to stand before this great white throne judgment. And when, they're stand, when they stand and when they're judged, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death. That's an eternal death. That's not a death that our first parents experienced. But it is a death that anyone who rejects God's offer of salvation will experience forever and ever. Not by God's choice. Not because he wanted it, but because they chose it for themselves. They wanted to be judged according to their works. And then in verse 15, it tells us that those not found in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. There is this book of life. What a book. And there are names written in this book. Names of human beings written in this book. when the 70 went out on their preaching journey that Jesus had sent them out on in Luke chapter 10, they came back and reported to Jesus about what they'd experienced. They were full of joy. And they said, look, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus said to them, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The greatest basis of rejoicing for any human being, our names are written in heaven. Where are they written? They're written in this book. They're written in this book of life. Revelation 13.8 says that, All of the people that are on the earth will worship the Antichrist whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. And you remember the story of Moses back in Exodus chapter 32. Israel had sinned a great sin in worshiping this golden calf which they had made. And Moses knew this is going to bring dire and certain consequences. And so Moses is the man of God. And one of the greatest acts of intercession anywhere in Scripture intercedes for the people and inserts himself right between God and his judgment and the people of Israel. And this is what Moses says He says, Yet now, if you will forgive their sin. And many of the translations have a long dash. After that last word, sin. Yet now, if you'll forgive their sin, long dash. And the idea is there is a great pause, the thought of unforgiven sin. Yet now, if you'll forgive their sin. But if not, if you will not forgive their sin, Moses said to Yahweh, Blot me, I pray, out of the book which you have written. And then the Lord answered Moses and said, him who has sinned against me, he I will blot out of this book. And so there's this book of life, and those who have trusted in Christ, their names are written in it, and apparently those who continue in the sin of unbelief through their whole life eventually are blotted out of that book. So it takes a lot of effort to resist the grace and mercy of God for one's whole lifetime. If you're not a believer this morning, I hope that I can say of you, you're not a believer yet. There are three kinds of people that my friend uh, Don Stewart used to talk about. There are believers, and there are unbelievers, and there are procrastinators. I hope you don't remain an unbeliever. I hope that you're state of unbelief has only been temporary. You've been putting it off. But you don't have to put it off any longer. You can believe this morning. You can believe right now, sitting in your seat. You can say, yes, Lord, I trust that Jesus is the Son of God. I receive him right now into my heart. And you can make a confession of that faith right now in your heart and to someone else after the service, and you'll be saved. The Bible says that the one who believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead and has confessed with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, shall be saved. And that can be your decision this morning. I love this idea of the book of life. And I'm certain my name is written there because I'm in Christ. And the Lord is going to keep me. I hope you're certain too. And if you're not certain, get certain. It's really important to get certain. The assurance, I can't give it to you. I can't talk to another person and say, I can absolutely assure you that you're going to heaven when you die. Because that assurance is something that only the Holy Spirit can give another human being. But I can say to you, if you believe the gospel under God's terms, you have eternal life. I can say that. And I can assure you that your name is written in the book of life if you have truly believed the gospel. Someone made this suggestion, that this is sort of what the scenario will look like. So I find myself in heaven. And there's a big sign on the entranceway into heaven that announces my entrance there. It says, whosoever will may come. So I'm in Christ. I am able to walk through that entrance. Whosoever will may come. Sounds like an invitation to me. Sounds like the invitation I responded to when I was living on the earth. So I enter in through the gates and then I look back on the inside of the sign and it says, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And then I go over there and I look and I notice that there's a book. And there's an angel standing guard over the book. What's the book? It's the book of life. Oh, what's in the book? The names of those who have eternal life. Wow. Is my name there? Of course, my name's there. Can you look up my name? There it is right there on page whatever. And then I ask, when was that written? When was my name put there? And the answer, before the foundation of the world. The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Such good news. Such good news. Is our future awesome or what? And then we come to chapter 21. A new heaven and a new earth. One verse. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Now why why is there going to be a new heaven and a new earth? Well. Were it not for the fact that the first creation fell with Adam's fall, there would have been no need for a second one. But even though there will be a regeneration of this fallen earth in the millennium, there's still sin inherent and latent within the creation. And so the first one has to go in preparation for the second one, which is going to come. And Paul the Apostle, in a very important passage in Romans 8, I'll read it to you, verses 18 through 22, describes the current groaning of the creation. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation Eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now listen to this part particularly. For the creation was subjected to futility, to emptiness, to frustration. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. What an apt description of the creation, the cosmos. There's groaning attached to it. There's still death in it. There's still destruction in it. There's cycles of death and destruction. There's misery and pain in it. Even though we live in a beautiful area like this, we have to remind ourselves, this is still fallen creation. It's not the final version that God has in mind. It's a groaning creation. The creation experiences it. The trees experience it. The stars experience it. The animal kingdom experiences it. Human beings experience it. Believers who are sensitive to God's spirit experience it. There's a continued groaning that is going on. Now, interesting, because Charles Darwin, he saw this groaning that exists In the material universe than in the world. And he made the mistake out of misinterpreting this groaning. He looked at the cycles of death. He saw how the stronger devoured the weaker, and the weaker couldn't survive. And it seemed like only the strong could survive. And he saw this death and he saw this destruction. And so he created doctrines out of what he saw the doctrine of natural selection, and the doctrine of the survival of the the fittest. And out of these doctrines, he created the hypothesis of evolution and wrote his infamous book, The Origin of the Species, in 1859. And it became instantly a bestseller and adopted by world leaders even as a philosophical basis for their systems, namely Marxism, Leninism. The world has never been the same since the publication of that book. But he misread. Apart from divine revelation, he misread and misinterpreted the cosmos. The biblical explanation is the explanation that God has revealed and that makes the most sense. This is a fallen world. That's why you see these cycles. This is an evidence of an evolutionary process where things are growing and increasing and improving. In fact, we see the opposite everywhere. We see entropy. We see the second law of thermodynamics. We see pain and destruction. We see the opposite. And the Bible says, God says, that this is the result of the groaning of the universe, not the improvement of the universe through a process Called natural selection or the survival of the fittest. A whole philosophical system has been built upon the misinterpretation of what's going on in the cosmos. And there's no way to overstate this. This is the most significant in the last 160 years event that has happened in our world. But God says, this one's going away, this creation and a new heaven and a new earth are being created. This is not a picture of renovation of the earth that exists, but the disappearance of all of it. And even the prophets said the same thing. Isaiah sixty-five seventeen: For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. That's what God says. All of this one passed away. In a very dramatic moment. Now Second Peter chapter 3 gives us even more insight into this. And if you'd like to you can turn there and read along with me. But in Second Peter 3.10 Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Second Peter three verses ten through thirteen heat is what will burn up this present cosmos, and God by his creative power will make a brand new one. Notice also as we go back to revelation twenty one one that there in this eternal state will be no more sea so no no need any longer for the maintaining of the hydrological cycles where you've got evap- evaporation, formation of clouds, rainfall, rivers, streams, into the ocean, evaporation, and this cycle discontinues. There won't be any need for that in the new heavens and the new earth. And one reason for that is that all of those who are alive in their eternal new bodies won't need water. In that age. There will be no need of it. Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection from the dead, he said, look at my hands and feet. It's I myself. Handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So Jesus in his new body had a spiritual body. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. A spiritual body. Now in that spiritual body... It's not like typical and normal flesh and blood. It doesn't have blood in it. And it's not a physical body in the same sense that this physical body is a physical body. It's physical, but it's not in the same sense of physicality. And Jesus pointed that out. And it's interesting, Paul said in Philippians 3.21 that the bodies we're going to receive are going to be transformed according to the same working by which he subdues all things to himself and that our bodies are going to be conformed into the image of his glorious body. In other words, the bodies that believers have in eternity will be bodies that are like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ now. In 1 Corinthians 15.50 says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So apparently these eternal bodies that we have won't have blood in them and therefore won't need water because water is essential for the survival of a, of a body which is determined and alive by the blood that is in the bloodstream. No need for water. No need to drink anything. Nor, no need for eight classes a day. Any of those kinds of things. Interesting. No more sea. I don't think that should bum you surfers out. God will make provision for you somehow. I'm not sure exactly how. Verse 2, God dwells with men. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now this has been considered just very wild by people. That a city would literally descend from heaven to the earth. That God has prepared. How could this be? But the scripture is consistent. Jesus talked about in John chapter 14. That he is going away. To prepare dwelling places for us. And we can be certain of that. In Galatians chapter 4. Paul the apostle wrote about the Jerusalem which is above which is free and is the mother of all of us. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham, the father of faith for all who believe, Jew and Gentile, waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Even Abraham was waiting for this new Jerusalem, way back in his day. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the author to the Hebrews says that we have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered into heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And then Hebrews 13 tells us, here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one which is to come. There is a city, it's the heavenly Jerusalem, it's being prepared as a bride for its bridegroom and it's coming down out of heaven to the earth and is going to be God's eternal dwelling place with us, sharing it with him. It's going to be awesome. And we'll get a greater description of it in subsequent verses, not this week, but in following weeks. Verse 3, this loud voice that John hears And the first thing that this loud voice says is the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. He will be with them, God himself, and be their God. This is fantastic. When the Jews had the temple in the Old Testament period, this cloud would descend upon the Holy of Holies. And we call that cloud the Shekinah. We call the glory there the weight, which is the Hebrew kabod, the weight, the heaviness of the presence of God. But the word Shekinah came from that Hebrew word Shelem, which, by the way, means habitation. It's where God lived. It's where he decided to hang out. And in this new Jerusalem, that's what he's doing. He has, for these last 2,000 years, in our minds decided to hang out in the person of his son. The whole gospel message is connected to that. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us pitched his tent among us in the person of Christ. Well, in the eternal state, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit literally makes his camp in this new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever, with no separation ever to take place again. Isn't that wonderful? I don't even know how to add comments to this, what this is going to mean for all of us. Who believe. And then in verse 4, every tear is wiped away from every eye under the subject of eternal benefits for those who overcome. Before we go any further, that's a statement from verse 7 He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Who is the one who overcomes? 1 John chapter 5, we've referred to it last week. The one who overcomes is the one who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. The one who overcomes is the one who trusts in Christ and who believes in him through all of life's trials and struggles and challenges. That's the one who overcomes. And that one who overcomes, God says, every tear wiped from their eyes. A benefit for those who overcome, no more pain. David wrote in Psalm fifty six, You number my waterings, you wanderings, you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The Lord's keeping track of all the pain. It gets wiped away. Completely wiped away. Why? Because Jesus Christ Himself has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He took our pain. He took our guilt. He took our sorrow upon himself. Redeemed us from the curse of the law. These things, tears, death, sorrow, crying, pain. Look at the end of verse 4. The former things have passed away. They will, in the eternal state, no longer exist. No such thing. That's what we're living for. We're living this life in anticipation of that one. This, very short. That one, eternal. Forever and ever. Live this life in the light of that one. Live this life in the light of that one. And for that one. In preparation for that one. Verse 5. Again, an eternal benefit for those who overcome. All things are made new. And to seal that statement, write, these things are true and faithful. And then the next benefit for those who overcome. Verse 6, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. There is an unlimited supply of the water of life. This is real water. Real life. Remember Jesus said that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and out of his innermost being will gush forth torrents of living water. This he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus Christ had not yet been glorified. So this living water that satisfies every thirst we could possibly have the things we spend money on and time on and worry over and energy in and focus upon to try to get some elusive satisfaction which does not exist apart from Christ. The living water supplies it all. And the living water is nothing less than the Spirit and His work within our hearts. So this unlimited supply of the water of life could very well refer to an unlimited supply of the Holy Spirit and all of his benefits within our hearts. And to assure us of all this, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. It is done. Alpha, first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega, last letter in the Greek alphabet, beginning and end. God's the first word. He's the last word. He's the beginning of everything. He's the end of everything. Eternal benefits for those who overcome. The inheritance of all things. In verse 7. Again, how do you wrap your mind around this? Everything is inherited by everyone who is in Christ. (laughs) You may be fortunate and have... A big inheritance waiting for you on earth. Maybe your rich uncle died and put you in his will. Nothing compared to this. Absolutely nothing compared to this. Eternal benefits for those who overcome. Verse 8 or verse 7. Sonship with God himself. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Eternal benefits for those who overcome, the complete elimination of the presence of evil and evil beings, verse 8. No cowardly there, no unbelieving there. Nothing connected with anyone who doesn't want to be there is there. Only those who want to be there are there. No one to ruin the party. This eternal, wonderful experience of the presence of God forever and ever. Nothing is there, no one is there, to reign on that great parade that God himself has created. So nothing can ruin the day. Isn't that wonderful? There's a lot here. A lot to think about, a lot to med- med- meditate on. These are passages that need to be come back to again and again and again because they're the basis of our hope. We're going to go into communion in a moment. We're going to remember the Lord's death for us and his resurrection for us. We've prepared our hearts in the word, so it should be an easy thing just to remember all that Jesus has done for us. But if you're here with us this morning, if you not made that commitment to trust Christ, could I encourage you to make that commitment right now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the blessing of all that you have in store. You could have kept these things secret from us. You could have kept us much more in the dark. But you've decided to reveal these things to us by your spirit, and we thank you for it. We pray that you teach us what to do with this truth. How it can change our lives. Peter told us that since these things are going to be happening, what kind of people should we be now in all holy living and godly conversation? So help us to be the kind of people you've called us to be, Lord, living in the light of eternity. And for anyone that's among us this morning, we're so glad they're here, that hasn't yet made this decision to trust Christ. We pray for them right now that the Spirit of God it will help them realize that there's nothing that they could give up that won't be replaced a million times more by you yourself. Giving up sin to exchange it for forgiveness, what kind, of, what kind of forfeiture is that? There's nothing to it. Open up eyes, open up hearts, we pray. Is there anyone here this morning who wants to make that commitment for the first time, you want to trust Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, would you just raise your hand right where you're seated? Let me know that you want to receive the Lord as we head into communion. Your first act as a believer can be to receive the bread and the cup, which represent the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Anybody this morning, you're ready to make that decision. I want to trust Christ. I want to give my life to him. Raise up your hand right where you're seated. Let's just thank the Lord. One of the words we give to communion is Eucharist. We call it the Eucharist. It comes from the word which refers to the giving of thanks. So let's give thanks for all that Jesus has done, for all that he is doing, for all that he will do. Thank you, Lord. And as the men disperse the elements, the Bible says that a man should examine himself and then he should eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Even if you don't feel yourself worthy, take the bread, take the cup, because this is what we need to be alive. This is what we need to be strengthened. We need Jesus. And these elements represent him. Taking of these elements by faith is to take Jesus Christ into your spirit and into your soul in a brand new and new, newly powerful way. So take advantage of that blessing and that privilege.